Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 231st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Michael Goodman. Michael is the founder and president of Wealthstream Advisors, a fee-only RIA headquartered in Manhattan that manages over $1 billion in assets for 350 client families. What's unique about Michael, though, is that he used his early experience as a CPA to transition into a career as a financial planner, starting first as a solo practitioner before making the deliberate decision to build out a large ensemble firm that can persist and sustain even after he retires. In this episode, we talk in depth about the convergence of the tax planning and financial planning professions, how early CPAs pioneered the wealth management model by running what were essentially family offices offering affluent clients comprehensive tax and financial advice that expanded into RIAs helping with investment management as well. How the breadth of business model knowledge that CPAs obtain as part of their stringent education offers unique perspective on the planning process, and as Michael puts it, a bigger lens to work from. And how working with a consultant was a catalyst for helping Michael change his own mindset from maintaining a CPA lifestyle practice to building an enduring RIA enterprise. And how building and being part of a larger team ended up being the aspect of business ownership that Michael enjoys the most. We also talk about Michael's own journey through the financial services industry. Why doing audits for small to mid-sized businesses as a young CPA gave him the equivalent of an MBA education in business management while getting paid to do the work that was giving him such an invaluable education. How Michael moved to what was at the time a big six accounting firm, but ultimately found the work unsatisfying because he lost the human element he enjoyed so much. And how Michael's involvement with the AICPA's personal financial planning membership was the pathway to finding mentors that he could model after as a planner and a business owner. And be certain to listen to the end, where Michael shares the specific hires he's made as his practice began to expand, including a lead advisor as well as a COO to free up his time to work on the business rather than in the business. The specific types of traits and experience that Michael was looking for as he filled these roles the mechanics of the valuation process that Michael went through in order to bring in shareholders to build the next generation, and how changing Michael's mind around hiring younger planners just out of college has turned out to be a hugely satisfying professional experience. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michael Goodman. Welcome, Michael Goodman, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here, knowing you so well from close and from afar for so long. It's 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 wonderful to be here and spend this time with you. So thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. I, I really appreciate you joining the podcast and 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 coming out to talk with us today. You know, you you and I have gotten to do a lot of work together through the AICPA and and its personal financial planning section. And you know, from my end, just as someone that's been involved with a lot of the industry organizations over the years. I, I feel like the the AICPA's personal financial planning world kind of lives lives in its own own sort of world and domain that's a little bit separate from the rest of the the financial advisor world of of FPA and NAPFA and FSI and NAFA and all of those organizations. You know, it it, it comes as an extension from the CPA roots. I mean, literally, it's a a section of the of the AICPA and the in the world of accountants, but one of the themes that 
I'm seeing so much more in our advisor world is more and more advisory firms are incorporating some level of, of tax planning advice into what they do. Maybe not the full on like tax compliance, tax preparation work, although some are doing that, but a lot more advisory firms that are doing some tax planning work as, as part of their value adds. And at the same time, I know the the CPA world has had a lot of its own challenges, right? The the rise of technology, the rise of large discount tax prep competitors, you know, it's it put some pressures in the in the CPA world that's driving a lot of them to say, well, if, if you don't like all that tax preparation work and the brutal seasonality of tax preparation, have you ever considered financial planning and wealth management? And so I'm I'm watching these two worlds that have not really overlapped that much over the years suddenly converging and and overlapping with each other more and more. And, and I know you have very much lived that divide, like came up through the traditional accounting firm at, I was going to say big four, but I guess it was more than four back then, but through the, through the big accounting firm world, came over into the financial planning world, have been in, in financial planning world for the, the better part of 20 years now. And so I, th- I thought it would be really interesting just to have this conversation about this convergence of the financial advice business, the, the tax planning and advice business. You know, I know advisory firms are looking more and more at this of, of the growth into tax planning. But like, how does someone that's come from the CPA tax world look at the the journey into the financial planning business? Yeah, well, it's definitely been a unique ride. And I think that the CPA community itself has a different lens to this for a couple of different reasons, perhaps. First and foremost, I think some early CPAs maybe running what they didn't even know at the time were kind of like small family offices in a way where clients would go to their CPA as like their business advisor and their personal advisor. And CPAs would get involved in doing planning and didn't even know it was called financial planning back then. And so early on, there were a lot of CPAs that did this work, advised even on investments in some way without even knowing they were doing financial planning. And were some of the very early RIAs were, were CPAs and they had their own community. They didn't know from or interact with some of the other lines or ways of broker dealers or other investment advisor organizations. Because they didn't come through the, this wasn't one from the roots of being investment managers. This was the roots of being the personal accountant for a family or a business owner that then morphed into giving accounting advice and tax advice and then business advice. And then I've got all this other wealth and what should I do with it? No, we can help you with that as well. And suddenly, you know, accounting based work for some affluent people with a lot of complexity turned into, they were actually giving a lot of advice and ended up spinning up RIAs to do it. Yeah, that's right. We, we actually like to say that CPAs have been doing financial planning for probably over a century. We just didn't know it was called financial planning. I feel like you've already thrown down the gauntlet. Like, you know, you all, all you CFP folks celebrating your 50 year anniversary, like <laughs> Collins has been doing this for a hundred years. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say that, of course. I mean, we, we do joke that CPAs are uniquely qualified, but at the end of the day, the financial planning profession as itself has really become a much bigger group of people. And we're all commingling pretty well these days. You can look at most firms' websites. You'll see maybe some firms are a little more CPA-centric, but you'll see CPAs and CFPs in most of these places, even though it's not 100% like that. For the most part, you'll see a lot of that. Even if you look at some of the bigger accounting firms that have large 
wealth management practices, and there are a lot of CPAs sort of on the website, you'll see some non-CPAs that are hired to work in the wealth management side of the business. So I think we're seeing a slow convergence of the two in a, in a way. I know a lot of very successful advisory firms that got going in the 80s and 90s that came very directly as spinoffs from the big accounting firms that were doing predominantly high-end financial planning for executives, because that was really where the market was. You know, Today, we have a lot of standalone firms that do investment management and consulting for executives as their niche. But back then, it was very heavily in, in, in the big firms like Pricewaterhouse. And a lot of advisors actually cut their teeth as CPAs doing what I think we would still very much recognize as financial planning today for executives as a as a particular focal point as an offering for the accounting firm and then said, actually, I just want to go do this on my own as an independent. I'd rather do it on my own than than in the big accounting firm environments. And they and they spun off and launched their firms and built from there. That's right. There's some really big firms that have accumulated a substantive practice, merged and created even bigger companies in that way. I think some of the leading large firms in the country have, have some, if not all, of their roots in that angle. But what's what's I think important to point out is that tax planning in general has just become such a big part of financial planning. And CPAs, of course, have that natural part of their education, and many of them have worked on that side of the business. So I think we're always going to see that. But it is something that you don't have to be a CPA to necessarily learn. It's just the training and the and the sort of putting into the fire kind of an education and workload that is typical among CPAs does uniquely qualify them to work in that tax planning world. Well, and certainly in a realm where a lot of us in the financial planning world talk about trying to lift standards, lift standards of care to, to be client-centric, lift educational standards and competency standards, you know, relative to our industry's roots where, you know, you needed basically a sales license because that's what a series exam is. Like you needed a sales license in order to sell a product. And it was all told a fairly low bar. If you want to be a CPA, like you're talking undergraduate school, graduate degree, very rigorous CPA exam, years of work experience. Like the, the, the path has always been a lot more stringent on the CPA side. I think the financial planning side is still catching up. And so to me, one of the things that's always struck me, and and frankly, one of the reasons why I've always liked being involved with AICPA's financial planning section is, you know, anybody in that room started with a graduate degree before they even ever set foot into an advice firm. And not to try to be like educational elitist around this or anything, but just it's a high bar. So you tend to get a pretty darn sharp bunch (laughs) For anybody that comes to financial planning through the accounting world, like just that undergraduate degree plus graduate degree plus CPA exam is is quite a vetting experience for the depth and knowledge of the people that tend to come into the business. They may still have to learn the financial planning side of the business, but you know have a lot of capabilities as they come to the table. And to me, that's part of what's making the crossover from accounting world to financial planning going so well for a lot of them is you know they're they're bringing a lot to the table just have to kind of expand the knowledge skill set a little into, okay, financial planning is not quite the same as just doing tax tax returns and tax advice. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. And, and part of that, all that education that you're referring to, 
includes learning a lot of other things. And while you might not flex some of those muscles later on in your career, you have learned a lot of things, whether it's financial statements or how businesses work and auditing and those kind of concepts. Even if, like I say, you never even worked in auditing, it gives a bit of a training that allows you to look at things perhaps a little differently than somebody without that training or that or without that education. When, when I go in and work with a client who is a business owner, there's sometimes language I'm using that I don't even realize that I got from my earlier days in accounting to ask some questions and understand how that affects them outside of the, the tax work that we're talking about. And even for clients that might not be business owners, but might be senior executives in a big company, the idea of asking them questions about their business unit and how they're working and how their careers might develop, I think that helps, does give you a bigger lens to work from. Yeah, and, and just the the way that the accounting side gets to show up in the in the financial planning world as well strikes me for, you know, you bring the depth, but you also get to bring a, a, a certain worldview. You know, one of the things I've long observed in, in the world of CPAs is you know, just there. There's sort of two different mindsets I find for for CPAs. Like some accountants are really, really good at the accounting, and I mean that really literally. Like accounting for things that just backward looking view. We are going to account for every single thing that that happens. Right? They can be great accountants, fantastic auditors, do great work on tax compliance, and then there's another segment that just at the end of the day, they like the forward looking more than the backward looking. They, you know, they may be accountants, but they don't actually like accounting for things. They like the forward view, which is much more of the, as I view it, the planning side of the business. And and I find that just the the ones that truly like to account for things tend to stay on the accounting side of the business and are very happy with it. The ones that actually have that forward looking orientation and motivation and like to plan struggle on the accounting side because, you know, Auditing is only closed facts, not open opportunities, and seem to migrate more to the financial planning side of the business. No, it's a great point. There's definitely some dichotomies within the CPA world, and that is surely one of them. I've noticed that there's definitely a lot of accountants that are really good communicators and can really communicate to a client what's going on and, and what it means to them, and some aren't. You know, the, you get back to that old joke, you know, what's the difference between an actuary and an accountant? And it's that the CPA actually looks at your shoes instead of their own shoes, you know, but, but some of them are pretty extroverted as you, you, you've seen in the AICPA. So talk to us a little bit about your journey from starting out in the accounting world. Like what, what did you do in the accounting world? And then how did you end out in the, in the financial planning side of the business? Yeah. So for me, it was pretty a weird, long, circuitous story. And, and I didn't even actually start in accounting. My, my degrees from school were actually in finance and in communication. And when I graduated college, my first job actually was working at Bear Stearns, an investment bank at the time, in their, quote, operations training program. And the, the real irony is that my, one of my primary responsibilities in my first job was operating a DOS-based advent system of portfolio accounting. Which, oh, like good old advent. advent. Exactly, okay. exactly. 
that was part of my job in the beginning. So, but long story short, I worked in finance for a couple of years and even tried my hand at an entrepreneurial stint before I decided to go back to school and when I was or, or get another job. And when I was looking at the help wanted ads, which they actually had newspaper ads back then, I was looking at the jobs that I was interested in. They all said CPA or MBA preferred. And I liked school, always willing to go back and learn more. But the idea of getting this license as a CPA was something that sounded much more secure to me, where I would get this license and I knew I would have a job that I could make a living at. And with the MBA, which is a great degree, potentially, it didn't really qualify me for anything. Interesting. So like, you know, CPA is a license, like license is a license. It's it's got to open doors by definition of being a license. If you can't do it without the license, I've got the license. I, I have to be able to do things I couldn't have done. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was my dad who was a bus driver in my back ear saying, get a good union job. You know, I didn't want to work in that kind of setup, but you know, a CPA license is almost like you're in a union, right? Yeah. So, so that could have stuck out in my head a little bit, but I actually went back to school at night to take the equivalent classes because I had the business degree already. So I just needed the accounting stuff, if you will, so that I could sit for the CPA exam. And I went and got a job at a midsize accounting firm and started working there. And the midsize firm was really great. I mean, I like to tout my big four experience at KPMG because that sounds great to people. But the midsize firm, we would go out and do an audit and a review of a small business and we would see how the business worked. And you would get to understand if they had inventory and how they had cost of goods sold and how the, you know, the whole concept worked. But in a small or mid-sized firm, what's really cool is after you do the audit, you come back and then you have tax season and you would actually do the owner's tax returns from that business. So you really saw the whole flow through. And mm -hmm. for me, what I realized in hindsight was that was the best education I could have ever gotten compared to an MBA. And I actually got paid as opposed to paying somebody for an MBA. I got paid to get that education. So it was really special to be able to have that sort of view going into businesses and being curious like that and learning. Very cool. So you've just made a, for, for anybody who's listening is thinking about like MBA versus CPA, you've, you've, you've definitely, I think, sold a few CPA licenses over the MBA here. Like get your CPA, go do your few years of audit experience. You'll get the equivalent of an MBA education when you audit a bunch of small to mid-sized businesses. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, to this day, the CPA license is a well-respected credential. I, I believe that it's a, a valuable license. I believe that there, and I, clients have told me over the years, that's one of the reasons they've chosen me over a different advisor because of that credential. So you wanted kind of the more secure business career opportunity, CPA is a license. You went for it. You did night school to finish the classes. I, I guess got, got through your CPA exam, went to work for a mid-sized accounting firm, started getting experience in in the world of working with small to mid-sized businesses while you're doing audit work for them. So then what, what comes next? Yeah. So it's ironic that you talk about wanting that security or I, I talk about it as well, because what comes next is anything but. So worked in that mid-sized firm for a couple of years. I wanted to see what the big, big boys were all about, the big accounting firm, if you will. And I went to KPMG and uh, did that for a little while. What was the like? What was the role or the or the path at KPMG? Like, what were you, what were you going there for or to do? Well, the job was on the audit side, and 
it was the total polar opposite of the experience that I was having on at that mid-sized firm where you really narrow into one thing and you work on that one thing for a really long time. Typical client engagement was, you know, months at a time. In some cases, there were people that worked on one client pretty much all year round. And it just didn't allow for that sort of curiosity for me. It was way too much head down and doing the math and not enough getting to communicate with people and learning. And one of the things that probably pushed me out the most was, especially at a big firm like that, was that you have to work with people that at the end of the day, it's not theirs. Not that they're not nice, not that they want to, they don't want to do great work. But, you know, one of the cool things about our profession is we sit across the table from the owner every day, even though it's mostly on Zoom these days. And we work with somebody and we make an impact on their personal lives. And it was, that was harder to do in a big firm. And it just kind of made me feel as less, less satisfied, even though it was lucrative. Is that because the, the firm itself was so large or is that a more a function of like the clientele that you were getting, meaning you're like, you're working with, I don't know, executives or senior managers at companies that themselves are so large. So you're just, you're so far removed from the end quote unquote owner, or you're in a publicly traded company where there's tens of thousands of owners as shareholders. And it was just like the, the difference between working with really big companies with diffuse ownership versus small businesses were like the owner's the owner. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In the mid-sized firm, we dealt with the owners and that was pretty cool. And I contemplated going back to that, but the idea of working, you know, more and something that I really found interest in was good. And and while I was going through this path and having this, you know, anecdotal experience, right? This was my experience. We all know that everybody goes through some career paths, especially very early in life and make some quick judgment calls. And maybe if I would have gone back to a mid-sized firm or something else, I would have found it just as rewarding. But all along, I was, you know, reading not only at the AICPA, but as my membership gave me a lot of information, but also seeing other people and seeing this concept of the financial planning business being created and and getting into it. Most of the people that I knew very early on in those areas uh, coming out of school were basically either sort of, quote, stockbrokers back then, you know, we're talking in the late 80s, or insurance salesmen. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that was, I knew not what I wanted to do. And then when I learned more about financial planning, that this concept existed where you could do a comprehensive plan and really understand what was going on in a client's total life and get into that, that became much more exciting to me. How did you find out about this? I mean, was there a particular thing or a path or a program or an organization? Like just where did the awareness come from? Yeah, it came from a couple of different places. It definitely came from the AICPA. They were starting to offer more and more information around financial planning. I remember reading a a CPE catalog uh, one night and seeing that you could get like a certificate in financial planning, take a series of classes. And that started to really get me curious because I was always wanting to learn and, and explore more. I remember talking to people and learning about the concept, I think back then it was called IDS, financial IDS. Yeah, IDS, just as it was transitioning to American Express. Yep. Yeah, learning about that and they did a plan. And and so I learned more and more about how this worked. Knew somebody, you know, sort of in the business and basically crazy, as I say, you know, quit my job 
at KPMG. My wife was pregnant with our first child at the time, and uh, we had just bought our home. And I basically quit my job and started this financial planning business pretty much from scratch. I had a couple of clients. I don't remember the amount. Let's just call it like 20, maybe 25 tax returns that I was doing on the side, like every other CPA that's in their 20s, you know, kind of doing some tax, 20s and 30s doing tax returns on their, on the side. But for the most part, I really had no, no income at the time and just sort of started the business. Has anybody ever told you that's not actually recommended to go start your firm from scratch with no clients while your spouse is pregnant in a new home with a new mortgage? Yeah. Just for the record, that's probably not optimal financial planning advice. I would not recommend it to most. I'm a really, really, really lucky guy and that my wife was super supportive of what I was trying to do. My wife, ironically, also is a CPA and we had met at that mid-sized firm that I was talking about. And we were doing some of those tax returns together at night after work. And, you know, she was extremely supportive and we, we said we would give it a try. And I think we both didn't realize how long it would take to get traction and to get started. And those early years were pretty brutal. They're very difficult times. So what was it that just made you like take this leap? Just you're at a, you're at a good big accounting firm. You got in at KPMG. A lot of people never, never managed to get in and get a gig at a big accounting firm. Like you're there. It's at least good money, even if it's not the most fulfilling work, like just what was the vision of what you wanted to do and and what what led you to just say i'm just like taking the leap and doing it yeah so it's a hard thing to kind of put into words and it's hard for me to know exactly how i was feeling in those days back then i can tell you while i was making more money than i ever thought i'd be able to make at that stage in my life i really wasn't very happy doing what i was doing it was not enjoyable i wasn't getting that experience of working with people, which is so important to me is, you know, I'm definitely a people person. And I had seen some different examples and models of how people were doing what they were doing and knowing people that were successful, even if it was not in my exact business. You know, I, I read a lot, even if I was just reading Business Week and learning about business, and I just felt, you know what, even though this sounds counterintuitive, I don't really view myself as an entrepreneur. It's just, this is what I kind of wanted to do. And I said, I'm just going to go try and do it. And I probably thought it was going to be a lot easier than it was. I knew a lot of CPAs had this little, you know, I had some success building my tax prep business and I thought it would just be okay. It'll just, it'll come slow, but it'll accumulate. And also it wasn't like I just woke up one day and quit. You know, my wife and I talked about it for quite a while. We were pretty conservative and careful about our own finances. She was still working, although of course she was pregnant. We didn't know how, whether or not she'd be able to continue working afterwards, but we saved up a fair amount of money and we said we would give it a try. And uh, that's sort of what we did. So what was the initial vision like what what was the what was the original business model that you set out to do when you launched the initial vision was i got licensed i didn't know what an ra was really that much at the time i got licensed to do you know my series 7 and life insurance license at the time and the original plan was kind of i'm going to do this financial plan for you you'll pay me up front a fee to do your plan and then i will do all this work, do all this planning to get 
all the steps of financial planning, you know, just like we've all been trained to do, uh, walk you through where you need to go and how to get there. And usually somewhere involved at the end was some sort of either existing investments or savings plan. And that I would now make these recommendations and they would invest with me. And if they needed insurance, you know, 99% of the time back then, of course, it was just term insurance, but I would help them with term insurance and or disability if they were looking to do that. And that's how I got started. That kind of changed all, you know, pretty quickly, but that's how I got started. And for the first couple of years, you know, I, I struggled. It was hard. I got some clients. I got some business. As soon as I started to make some money, I realized I needed to spend more money to either buy more technology or back then it was different kind of technology, but you know, whether it was, something to help me, you know, do my business or to do some marketing or whatever. So the profits weren't exactly robust. And then uh, I'm trying to think now about five years into it, almost by happenstance, I wound up on a phone call with a recruiter that was trying to get me, a cold called me to try to get me to go work for a, you know, doing a traditional accounting job. They didn't know what I did. I'm literally hanging up the phone saying, no, 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 I don't, I don't, that's not what I do. That's not what I want to do. And they're like, no, no, wait, I know, I know. And I, I, so I started continuing the conversation and they were explaining that they were representing an accounting firm that wanted to start a wealth management practice. And oh. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll listen, you know? And the idea of using my background as a CPA to now go into an accounting firm potentially and start up an entity that would be a wealth management division was interesting to me and opened up a whole new thought process for me. Also, at the same time, I was kind of slowly moving my business very far away from sort of a commission business into a fee-based business already. I was still with the independent broker-dealer, but I was not doing much of the upfront work anymore is really moving into more of an AUM based model at that point in time and really looking at the broker dealer more as a service solution than it was sort of a product solution. So I started talking to accounting firms and from from really big firms where they just wanted me to come in and they would pay me a mind-boggling salary all the way down to a one or two person firm where, you know, we'll we'll just build this together kind of a thing. And ultimately I settled on a smallish mid-sized firm where we would create a new entity and I would be partners with the accounting firm. I would bring my existing business in. And the theory was that they were going to refer a lot of business to me and we would grow this new business together of which I was a partner in. Interesting. So, so you made the decision like I'm going to, I'm basically going to fold my, my separate business into an existing mid-sized accounting firm that wants to launch this. I get equity in the in the accounting division, I guess, since I guess you get, you get to become partner, make partner at the, at the midsize accounting firm. And, and then you get to go and build the business under the accounting firm umbrella where they, in theory, at least have all the, all the tax client leads to do the cross referrals. That's right. That's right. And, and one of the coolest things about that was I was able to negotiate what is known in the partnership world as a guaranteed payment to partner. So I remember you know, it was a pretty long and sort of, you know, how these negotiations go, you hope it's going to work out. I was pretty young and naive at the time. And I remember we signed that partnership agreement. And I remember, you know, looking at my wife and saying, okay, I know I'm going to make at least this for a while. It's going to be okay. And we were pretty happy about that. And I earnestly went to work. I liked 
a lot. I liked the people that I partnered with, the managing partner at the time, and I got along really well. He was a bit of a mentor to me at the time and, and still is. And he's a great guy. And we, I was really excited and I worked really hard. And we can talk about for a little bit, as you know, there's a lot of gold in them, their hills of these accounting firms. But getting that gold out is a whole nother project. And it is difficult to get buy-in from all the partners to let them let go of some of those relationships and to let you come in, even though we all got along really well. And, you know, I had an office on the on the partner row wall and they treated me really well and gave me that respect. It was still just something that was uh, a little foreign to a lot of them and uncomfortable. And then you get a little deeper in and you find that, you know, there's not perfect harmony in, in, a, in a partnership all the time. And some people come and some people go. And that's part of the reason why it's also difficult to get to some of that business. I want to come back to that a lot more in a, in a moment and just understand how that, how that blending went. But, but talk to me for a little bit more first about just, so how long had you been on your own in, in broker-dealer world? before you actually made this transition? Like how long were you running out there on your own before you got to the point where you were going to do this fold-in transaction? Yeah, it's approximately five years. Okay. Four or five years, yep. So so just where did the business stand after five years? Like just give us some context for how, how well was this going or how brutal was it getting started on your <laughs> yeah. own at the time? Like where where did the business actually stand by this point? Well, at that point, I probably had somewhere around 30, 35 million in AUM and, and it was going okay. It was, I, I felt like, you know, in year three and a half to year four, a lot of the seeds that I had laid and a lot of the work that I had done, I started to really be able to get some referrals and some traction. And if you look at the graph, if you will, the line started to move up a little bit and it was, the trajectory was looking good. But still at the same time, I felt like I would be able to multiply that trajectory substantially and give myself a little more security. Now my second child was born at this point and I wanted to make sure that I would move along that line. So that's when I joined into that accounting firm. And, and where did it stand? So it sounds like you were getting a lot more momentum in the, in the last year or two of the of the first five-year journey. Like, what did the first three years look like then? A lot of meetings that didn't go too far. <laughs> you know, I was a very enthusiastic, energetic guy, and I was trying to talk to pretty much anybody and everybody. And I didn't really understand a lot about practice management yet at that point. I always joke that the first sort of portion of my practice was a combination of survival and education. I've kind of delineated different stages in my career, and I view that one by far as survival and education and learning because I had to make a lot of mistakes in order to learn, you know, just being willing to try to get whatever I could from a business standpoint and not being very, you know, selective, if you will. So it was a lot of time spent spinning wheels and learning what worked and what didn't work. Was there some point where you said, like, I think this is going to work? I mean, was there some crossover when you're, you, when you go from the, like, what have I done for myself after the first, I don't know, six months or 12 months or two years to the, like, okay, I think we're going to make it. It's not where I want it to be, but I think we're going to make it. I, I thought 
I was going to be okay probably, but I didn't feel secure until I signed that contract with the accounting firm. I did believe that I was going to make it, but the security didn't come until that point. And then even bigger security, which we'll get into in a minute, I guess, when I left that accounting firm and hit certain certain benchmarks and really felt like I was going to be okay. On the one hand, you think, oh my gosh, this guy must have been flipping out. He's got this house, his wife, these two kids, he started this mm-hmm. business. I don't know. I wasn't ever really too worried. I think that, I, I'm first of all, I'm an optimist by nature. I loved what I was doing, even when I was having these really bad experiences or you know, not like being able to get a client here or there. Although I did get clients. I don't want to make it sound like it was terrible. But you know, I, I was never really too down on myself. And I think my personality, my mentality, my optimism, and, and surely the support I had from my wife was, was instrumental in me, in me being able to stay the course. So you make this decision to, uh, to fold in the accounting firm. You'll get check, checks a little bit more of that security box since you got the, the, the guaranteed payment to partner, which suddenly brings a lot more stability to the situation. What happens then is you just start trying to build with the with the accounting business. I mean, it's not like the, you know, the, the model and the vision was I'm going to get all these business opportunities because the partners are going to refer me the clients that they're already working with. So did it, did it work? Did it not work? Like what happened? Yeah, it, it, it worked a little, <laughs> it okay. worked a little, there were one or two partners, maybe three tops that sort of really saw what I was trying to do and felt good about it and, and felt good about bringing me in to meet with some of their clients. And, I was able to get some some good business. And I would say that some of the clients that they referred to me, well, most of the clients that they referred to me were bigger than I would have been able to get on my own at that point for sure. Okay. And, you know, some of them were wonderful clients and I think I did a great job and it was really wonderful. It was just, it was more like a trickle than a, you know, than a flow. And what was also interesting at the same time is the convergence of my experience, the convergence of my network, the convergence of my tenure in the, in the profession, just even learning how to communicate better what I was doing. Because you have to realize I didn't have an apprenticeship of much. You know, I basically jumped in the pool in the deep end. So it took a little while to get my sea legs, if you will. I started going to conferences, AICPA, and not just on a national level, but even locally. You know, the New York State Society of CPAs were where I met initially some of the people that helped me out and and some of the people that I'm still friends with today. And I was so the convergence of all these things that were happening and I and I guess also the trust and confidence in other people that I had some legs in the business my own contacts really started to germinate and really started to come into fruition at that time. So the business started to really hit that trajectory that I was hoping for when I joined that accounting firm, but what was interesting is the overwhelming majority were from my own sources. So it was like you you finally started getting the momentum when you got to the accounting firm not from the accounting firm. That's right. That's right. So, so like how far in were you at this point? I mean, is it just like add another year or two, you, you had, you had been going five years on your own. Now you're another year or two in. So you're, you're six or seven years in and you start really seeing some of the momentum pick up. Yes, that's right. And I would say, and I want to overemphasize, even though I already said this, it was a convergence of a lot of different things. And it did really start to pick up pretty aggressively about that time, about a year or two into, into the accounting firm. And so what I'd said was, 
hey, we're all numbers people, guys, at the accounting firm. Let's look at the numbers. And the the math was such that it was while they gave me some significant clients, the volume and, and I was getting decent sized clients as well on my own. The volume was just really more on my side. So I went back. I'm trying to remember exactly. I think it was two years in or so. I went back and said, hey, we kind of need to renegotiate the way that we put this together because when we got together, I really anticipated the bulk of the new business coming from you guys, but it's not. So we should do that. So really long story short, we negotiated in earnest. And I say in earnest because they're good people. I, I still feel great about them. I actually have one of the partners of the accounting firm still as a client of mine today, but we basically agreed to disagree. And I wound up leaving the accounting firm about three-ish, three and a half years after I joined. And that's when I really started what I call today, you know, the business. I created Wellstream Advisors. It was in 2004 that I started Wellstream Advisors and really in earnest viewed myself as at that point a business owner and really kind of that second phase of, of growth. I guess I'm just curious looking back, like it was this just a, you were really actually on the track and it was about to gain the momentum on its own anyways. And you just like merged into the accounting firm a little bit too early to give it time? Like in, in retrospect, you wish you just stayed on your own anyways, since apparently the momentum showed up? No, not at all, actually. I don't, I don't, I really don't think about that for one second. Even today, all these years later, every mistake and or good turn that I've made throughout my career has gotten to me where I am. And there's no question in my mind that, and I'm not one of these people who believe in like it was meant to be or anything like that. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I have really no regrets of all the different things that I've done or tried or work with. I've, I've gotten better every step of the way because of those experiences. And I think part of the things that I learned, part of the things I learned from that accounting firm, from the clients I met there, the people I met there, being in the accounting firm and even resharpening some of those skills and talking to those accounts, there's no doubt that all these twists and turns are what got me where I am. And I'm, I have no regrets at all. So 2004, you break off from the accounting firm, kind of start the business, or I guess restart the business on your own, right? Like you, you had it for five years, it was folded in for three years. Now you're back out again on your own with the business. So what was the structure at that point? Did you go back into the broker-dealer world? Did you cross over into the RIA world? Did you uh, bring it back together some other way? Like, how, how did it actually move forward at this point? Yeah, so I was still with the broker-dealer, the independent broker-dealer, while I was with the accounting firm. But I was really becoming more and more enlightened to the RIA space. And also, this is around the time that I started to get really active at the AICPA and really start getting some incredible mentors and some incredible, generous people that were willing to show me how they do their business and the ideas of of running their practices, not only from a practice management standpoint, but even from the service delivery. And I was already in this sort of transition mode when I was at the accounting firm of, of moving away from the broker dealer. Okay. And so then you start getting involved in AICPA world. And it sounds like that's, that's when, that's when you start getting introduced to the RA side of the business. Yeah. So I was very early on. I mean, even even before I started working with the accounting firm, I was already, you know, reading a lot and going to conferences and learning about 
the different ways that people did business. And most of the conferences that I went to were through the AICPA. And I got really lucky. I tried to get involved pretty early on. Some people took me in and introduced me to a lot of people. And I started to, two things sort of happened for me at the same time. One was I got to the committee to plan the AICPA Personal Financial Planning Conference. So I was on that committee and then also got into a study group of people at the time. uh, The study group was called the All-Star Financial Study Group. And this group of people were just incredibly generous and warm to me and really took me under their wing. And they were all had been in business for many years and they let me into this study group when they knew I didn't have a lot to offer and they would, you know, we would talk and learn. They let me into their offices. They would show me how they did things. And most of those people were RIAs. And I sort of saw that as the model that I wanted to replicate. Interesting. So it was like, it was the volunteerism and, and involvement in the professional association group. That was kind of the, the pathway to finding mentors, models, people to learn other ideas of how to do the business. That's right. You know, the old adage, you know, the more you put in, the more you get out. And it was, mm-hmm. it couldn't have been any more true for me in the, gosh, I don't remember how many years now I've been active in the AICPA and I've served on so many different roles and committees and some of it official, some of it unofficial. I've gotten so much more out than I've put in by far. But the best thing is just going and working with people side by side and building these relationships and, and friendships. These Some of these people are my best friends and the idea of, you know, sharing, not in just a way that we share with other professionals that we know and some study groups I'm in today and who I like, those are friends too. But these are people that genuinely want you to do well. You know, they genuinely want you to succeed. It's a very unique experience to find people like that. And I found a lot of them in my work at the ICPA. Very cool. So what what comes next in this journey? Like you're, you're, you're back out in broker-dealer world, you're getting some momentum with clients and business development coming in, you're eight years into the business. So like, I guess I'm wondering two things, like how big is the business at this point? And like, where did you go next? Yeah. So when I left the accounting firm and started Wellstrom Advisors, I'm trying to remember the exact AUM that I had when I left there. And I honestly, I can't remember the exact amount, but it was somewhere in like, let's call it the 60 to 75 range. And business was going well. I started that the firm, I moved out of the account, forgot my own office space, signed the lease, brought two people with me, and business started to you know go pretty well. And I started to grow. And and remember, I explained that first stage was sort of that education survival. And to me, the second stage was now building what I called then a nice lifestyle practice. The business grew. I remember I hit a hundred million at some point shortly thereafter. And you know, trying to figure out, okay what happens next. And I was still doing the same thing, but it was really primarily me and some great people that were with me, but they were really just helping me do my business. It was, you know, that way. And I had a, my first sort of, okay, I really need to talk to somebody to figure out where I go from here. And that was one of the other great things about working in the AICPA and and study groups and meeting a lot of people is I was very comfortable working with other professionals to talk about my business. So at the time, Moss Adams was the premier consulting firm in the business, you know, Mark Tabergian, Rebecca Parmeling, and they knew. So I remember as I hit hundred million, I said, okay, I got to reach out to them and see, okay, what got me here is not going to get me where I want to go. And I'll do this engagement and have them come in and help me. And I remember that 
when we scheduled the meeting, I expected to work with somebody sort of on the team, if you will. And I found out that Mark Tabergian was going to be, you know, the person who came because he was already going to be in New York for on some other client engagements. And uh, he came and spent the day with me in my office. And, you know, that was a fortunate day for me, not only because I got to spend time, I had already met Mark once or twice at some different events and things, but to spend the day with him, even though I paid for it, I feel like it was a gift. Well, he's a he's a brilliant consultant, right? He he charged you for the day, and you felt like it was a gift. The That's last right. Mark version doesn't get better than that. But that that was a great day. I re, he asked me some great questions, and we kind of decided, you know, what we wanted to do. And I said, you know, I want to really build a strong practice. I want to build. I still was using the term sort of lifestyle practice, if you will. It was still really about me serving these clients. And it was great. It was the beginning of a great friendship with Mark that I have to this day that I'm super proud of. But it was like a demarcation point in sort of me growing. It really motivated me to grow the practice. So I went down hard and started learning and growing. And then uh, 2000, 2008 and 2009 happened. And that was a bit of a shock to the system because I had had so many years in a row of really good growth. I think that was the first year maybe one of only two years in my business where it didn't grow in some capacity. And, you know, that was tough. It was, it was, it was scary. I I had worked through 2000, 2001 and 2002, which in hindsight was a much longer and stressful period, but I had less at stake at that time. So 2008 and nine was, was much more painful. And that was, a tough period. But, you know, what's interesting is I found to this day that in times of stress in the markets or the economy is typically when I'm able to get more clients and more new business because people are willing to look up, pick their heads up and look either the do-it-yourselfers are looking for help or they're not happy with where they're at. But when things are moving positively, even though it might not be moving as positively as it should be, people are less willing to get help. So the business goes kind of careening into 0809. And I do find it's this sort of striking thing about the growth of the of the AUM model in general that you know as as the as the business grows, you know, just the the nature of the beast, you get kind of literally more assets at stake that move with the markets, more revenue that moves with the markets. Your business gets bigger and you start hiring team members and office space and technology and you have more fixed costs and you know suddenly when the when the bear market comes you know just the amount of revenue that evaporates in a market decline you know if if you hit one early in your career it's just not as traumatic at the end of the day it's like well I guess I'm taking home a little bit less cuz you know all, all the all the dollars basically go to you and when you grow for another 5 or 10 years and then you go through the same thing and the business is much bigger it can be way, way more stressful because that's, for most advisors, I find that's the first time you ever actually have to have the thought of like, will I be able to make payroll? Yeah. Yeah. That It was kind of scary. There's no question about it. Fortunately, I'm far removed from it, but I do try <laughs> to remember a lot of it in the way we operate the business today. And obviously, we'll talk more about that in a bit. And the, the pandemic definitely reawakened some of those fears initially. But you know, I got through that, right? It was a, a tough period. It was it was stressful as could be, of course, stressful for everybody. And I think even more stressful in New York City because New York City is such a financial services town and it was a financial services kind of meltdown. Yeah, you were at the epicenter. Exactly, exactly. But as I said, you know, I wound up kind of 
growing the business out of that, not, not right away, not right away by any stretch, but as it, as the market started to come back, I, I was getting a lot of referrals and the business started growing. And now I found myself in a different, different decision point. I basically had to make a decision of, okay, am I going to just stay here with this nice lifestyle practice where I actually am really feeling very, you know, relatively very secure, like we were talking about earlier, or am I going to, am I going to grow? And what is that going to look like? So what was the size of the practice at that point? Probably somewhere around 150 to 200 and change. I'm trying to remember exactly, but I'd say around 200 mil. Let's just go with that right around there. And, and how big was the team at that point? No, four or five of us. Okay. So, you know, really good practice, really good money. But at this capacity threshold, I guess, do you, do you even remember how many clients it would have been then? I mean, I know that's a long time ago, but like, if only by average client size, I mean, just was this like 200, you know, 200 clients that had a million dollars each kind of, kind of business or like 60 multi, multi-millionaires? No, no. So it was probably around 125 clients, 125. 35, somewhere in that range. I remember I always had early on a very, very broad range of clients because as, as I was explaining in the early years, I, I wasn't very discerning on who right. I would work with. And I also got some really big clients because of my knowledge around the CPA and people, I would meet with people and they would talk to me and I, they, they would see that I understood business and I was able to bring on some big clients kind of early on as well. So I had a very diverse client base, kind of still almost as we do today, pretty big spread between the biggest and smallest clients. Uh, this period forced me to do it. And I'm, I look back and it's one, one of the few times I think I was at that stage of the game, at least, was probably the beginning of me being much more intentional about what I'm going to do from here. Because it seemed like a lot of the decisions that I made in the business and sort of how I would do things was sort of... I definitely wouldn't use the word haphazard, but we're more like, you know, you're, 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 you're just pounding the pavement and then you come to a fork in the road. And as one of my good friends says, you just take it. <laughs> so, and that's kind of what I was doing probably early on, which is why I said it was a lot of education. But here I really spent several months. I remember reflecting and reading and talking to people about what am I going to do here? I ha- I'm making by most standards a pretty good living. I have a nice practice. I like my clients. They like me, but I'm still very, fairly young. I like to think, and what am I going to do from this point forward? I remember making this decision that I said, I'm going to just, I'm going to grow. I'm going to build a firm. I'm going to move away from this lifestyle practice. I'm going to take some risk. I'm going to really try to build out a firm and, and grow. And I did that. I spent some time, you know, building again. I wound up at this time around around, trying to remember the year this is now, but I remember right around the time I hit 250 million again, I looked back and I called Mark at that point. Of course, Mark was at Pershing now. And I said, who should I work with? And we talked about a bunch of different people I could work with, but I ultimately hired one of the, two of the ex Moss Adams people, Eliza DePardo and Dan and Veen and uh, FA Insight. And they came to the office and we built out a business plan to build out a firm. And that's what we did. I started hiring more people to move myself out of the primary clients so that I could grow and get more clients and started trying to hire more people at not only at uh, an advisor level, but also at a, a lower level to support them taking on some of the existing clients and allowing me to grow the business more rapidly. So, so really, I want to understand more of this 
this transition? What was it that led you to make a decision that said, I just, I, you know, this lifestyle practice is growing great, going great and making good money. And I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to stick with this anymore. Like just what, what led to the change? Well, there was probably a lot of different things, but I think there were two things that probably pushed me over the edge. One is I always loved the idea of business and just frankly, being in business and the idea that I could be more in business, if you will, I could create more of a business to enjoy and be a part of and help grow and, and design. Although I don't know if I use that thinking back then, I'm sort of, as, as I reflect on it, these are the things that are coming to me excited me. It just excited me to be able to grow and to do that. Obviously, didn't know if I would be able to be successful. And then I think the other the other thought was, I didn't want to ever look back and say, I didn't try. I didn't try to do that because I didn't have any idea how things would turn out, both in the economy or in my ability to grow. I was good at talking to clients, but I didn't know if I would be good as a manager or growing, and I didn't know it was around the corner. So I didn't want to ever look back and say, I couldn't. I would say, though, in hindsight, the best thing about growing the business by far is has been the, the team and growing the team. You know, well, now how many people we have and how great it is to come to work every day and to work with the people. I still love my clients, but by far, I'm, I'm more proud of and more excited about the team. And if I would have known that that would have been one of the rewards, I wouldn't have spent as much time thinking about it. Interesting. And so when you then said, like, you brought... Dan and Eliza in to help with this. So like what what was what was the plan? I mean you said you brought them in to to help you create a plan. Like what what was the plan? Well, I didn't know who to hire first, what roles to hire for, who on the existing team would need to change, what they would need to go and do. It was more around the people than it was around anything else. Although they did spend a lot of time with me talking about understanding my business, understanding the metrics of the business, understanding, you know, the difference between these smaller clients and the bigger clients and, and how that was going to work. And we talked about ways that I might grow or focus, but by far the biggest thing that I wanted out of that and what they gave me, because I didn't have any experience managing people or about what roles I should have or what those job descriptions should look like. That was the biggest piece of the advice around, okay, you have these people that are great and these people are great at what they do, but they can evolve into this. And where these are the missing pieces. You need to hire somebody to help you with this. You need to hire, you know, the biggest hire, of course, was an advisor to start taking relationships off my plate because I was probably maxing out. I was the guy on all these clients and it was just very difficult to manage all of that. I was working, starting, starting to work insane amount of hours again. It's like, what were the biggest shifts or, or like changes you realized you were going to have to make from the the business, I guess, like the business management and the hiring end. Like when you said you, you you didn't know what roles you needed to hire, what job descriptions you would need. So Dan and Eliza came in to help help give that guidance. Like when you came away, what were the biggest things you realized you were going to have to start doing differently or start hiring that you hadn't hired before? Well, it was hiring an advisor because I really never hired anybody to just take the clients and work with them. I was primarily the person and I had some people that were great at helping me do that. So not only the hire, but the psychology of, okay, 
you're going to take this client now. Of course, it's going to be a transition. We're going to do it together. It'll take some time. But basically, you're going to take this client now and you're going to be the person on this on this relationship. That was a, a difficult mind shift for me. I like to think I'm not controlling and I'm not, I'm not obsessive around details. But at some point, you have to let that go. I was so able to- put real revenue at stake at that that's point. That's right. Like, that's right. I was able to do that faster and earlier on the operation side. I was really lucky. Very early on at that accounting firm, I met Bill Schermacher, who came from the accounting firm, basically quit his job as the, at the accounting firm and came to work with me on the, on the wealth management side. And not only was he a CPA and we got along really well and had a lot of like, like-minded thinking about how to do things, but he really liked the operation side pretty early on. And, and so we kind of grew from that point forward together. And, and I felt super confident in the way that we did things together. So that was an easier transition for me, but the relationship, that was a little, a little hard for me to do initially. And then the other big piece that was difficult, of course, was you had to make some big investments. All along the way, they were more incremental. But now you're hiring people kind of quickly and their salaries are, you know, it's a, it's, a big, it's a big number relative to the other types of investments you've made in the practice in the past. So what, what, were, the, what were the hires that you had to start making that were like ramping up salary and payroll so quickly? Well, a good senior advisor. I got really lucky. I got introduced to Matt Gordon, who had a lot of experience as a, a great, great soul, really good people person, got along well. And he was somebody that I felt I could connect with well. And I knew that I, my clients would like. So he came aboard after having a lot of experience in the business as an advisor. But we were at the same time, I was really starting to learn to build out the the younger folks, if you will. Back in 2009, I think it was, could have been 2010 now, forgive me for not being on that, but I had hired sort of the first real CFP to work with me, and that was Mike Kimmel. Mike really started to grow, and he had great work experience beforehand, but he was still pretty young when he came aboard, which allowed me to sort of get a little bit of that experience helping manage and mentor him. And he blossomed into a great advisor. And then we started together hiring younger people to help build this sort of ability to sort of be analysts, if you will, the people to do some more of the detail work so the advisors could work with the clients. So what got you comfortable with hiring a, a senior client advisor and, and putting them in this role and, and having them start managing clients? Was it just to like, I guess I'm just going to have to do this because I have to do this? Or was there some shift in, in mindset or focus that, that got you comfortable to get you there? Well, I mean, the, the only way you're going to be able to grow is to get yourself out of some of these relationships because I'm too busy over here doing this all day. I'm never going to be able to spend my time doing these other things, which were primarily either going to be business development or managing the practice. So, you know, the old adage of if you're only working in the practice, you're not working on the practice and it's going to not go well. But, but you know, it was part of our our plan when I, when we, when I hired Eliza and Mark. And it was also kind of obvious to me, you know, that I was starting to work way too much and way too hard. I couldn't do it. And so it was, it was really kind of obvious to me that that was going to have to be the next move. What other kind of hiring did you have to shift into? I mean, was this primarily just the, just the getting comfortable with the senior client advisor role? You know, you talked about other, other roles that Dan and Eliza maybe had to educate you on and guide you on as part of getting ready for this next growth stage? Yeah, well, initially it was 
more about clients and servicing the clients. So we started, you know, growing pretty well at that point. Business was going well. Markets were going well. We were, I was now in the business for quite a while and really had a good network of referral sources and other on clients that wanted to refer business to us. And we weren't doing really any substantive marketing at that point other than just, you know, being out there, you know, I'm one of those people that have been networking since he's eight years old. He just didn't know it was called networking. So I had a lot of contacts, a lot of CPAs that would refer business to me that I knew, as well as just people in business. So the business was really growing at that point. And that's, you know, when we really started to, to become a firm and we just basically kept hiring along the way to meet that need. And it, we were just growing. It was a pretty much like a four or five year growth spurt uh, that we had where we brought those people on. And the growth spurt is like the the people got you to the growth spurt or just the growth spurt happened as the people came. So thank goodness. Uh, like just how did the how did that line up? Well, it's a chicken or the egg thing. You know, I don't know if I would have been able to spend as much time on business development and working my network if I didn't have those people. So it's a little bit of both, right? And knowing that, you know, there's nothing like a, a big expense to, to hustle you out there to get some new business or to, mm -hmm. to build. But, you know, I, I don't want to also make it sound like I'm sort of some sort of sales machine because I don't think I am. I, I'm just a people person who's out there a lot. And we've been really, really fortunate in the sense that we work incredibly hard for our clients and they're, they've been very generous with the referrals over the year. You know, there's definitely, you know, I don't know if it's 80, 20 or 70, 30, but there's, you know, they're definitely a minority, but a, a big minority of clients that, that gave us those referrals as well as the other networking sources that I had. Even the accounting firm, when I left, I took the clients that I, that they had referred to me with me on, with goodwill. I mean, it was, that was what we decided. And the accounting firm would still refer business to me even after I left because we left on really good terms. So it was just, you know, I think, I wish I could give you and, and the listeners some sort of big secret sauce, but at the end of the day, it was, you know, doing the important things, you know, taking care of your clients, being genuine, working hard, showing up on time, saying thank you and doing what you said you were going to do. And these were good times and the business just kind of grew. I think that this is where I had this other transitional mentality of, okay, I'm going to need to think through now where the firm starts to go. And also I had read a lot about succession planning. I was still, you know, and, and I'm still fairly young and was thinking, but, you know, I need to be careful in, in how I do this. And I always wanted partners working in an accounting firm, looking at law firm, you know, I always viewed that as a model that I would like, that I could have partners down the hall, if you will, that we could talk to. So at that point, I really started to think through that we really need to start transitioning some of the equity and start really having partners. They're, they're called shareholders because we're a corporation, but at the end of the day, you know, they would be shareholders in, in the corporation and it was something that was important to me. So I would say, you know, around about six years ago or so, I started to realize that we were going to be a multi-generational business. At least we had the potential to be, I should say. And two big things were the transition at that point. One was me selling some of the equity for the employees at the time that are now shareholders. And then the other big thing was hiring a COO. 
a COO that really understood what needed to happen that was experienced, tenured kind of person that could really run the operations of the firm. And that allowed us to really go to the next level. So how did the structure of selling equity to next generation advisors work? Because what's the what's the structure? What's the arrangements? Is is this uh you know, do they do they buy in? Do they get the equity? Are you, you know, externally valuing it? Are you internally valuing it? How how did that work? Yep. So we went out and hired a third party to value the business. It was really important to me to do an external valuation and basically had that person, you know, I presented their valuation to to these folks, some of which were my generation. Uh, they weren't necessarily the second generation yet. Some were, some weren't. So then they bought in at the valuation that that external party created. Who did you use for the valuation? For that first valuation, we used uh, David DeVoe, DeVoe & Company. So, so you do an external valuation and it's just, here's the valuation, the external, my, the external guy says so. It is what it is. Like you're, here's the valuation. If you guys want to buy in, like, you know, you get, you get share percentages of this. Yeah. But, but we, we lifted, we lifted up the curtain and gave them a lot more than that. You know, they didn't just see the valuation. They got to see, you know, how the valuation was created, what the cash flows of the business were, the PL for the prior years and sort of what the projected ones were. And you why. did give them access to all, all the business financials as they're evaluating it. I get, yeah, that's right. I gave them the, the, the valuation report, which included all that information. I think if I remember correctly, I'm trying to remember or not. I think David even did like a one hour presentation as to sort of, you know, how this all comes about to them. But the, the gist is they were able to see the, the numbers from the prior years and sort of what we were projecting going forward and, and what the assumptions were. And, and did you, were you structuring like discounts for being employees already or for being minority shareholders? Were there like adjustments to it or just straight percentages off the reported value? Basically, straight percentages off the reported value. I did not give any discounts for minority ownership or anything like that. And there was probably two reasons for that. Primarily, I felt like it's a good investment. I didn't feel like I needed to give a discount. I didn't think that was necessarily appropriate. I felt like uh, it's not like you're a shareholder and you're off in your home somewhere and you just own a piece of this. These people were in the business. They knew what was going on. They were part of the growth. So that was... That was a lot of my thinking. And the second thing is, in a way, I feel like, you know, the way these valuations are created is it's it's primarily a multiple of EBITDA based on sort of your discounted cash flows, right? And we all know that it's a discount in a way because it's done like sort of in an Excel model as opposed to what I could literally sell the business for if I was to sell it and walk away would be probably higher. Not that I had any interest in doing that in any way, but so in my own mind- You weren't I, you weren't listing it out there for every PE firm strategic acquirer to take a swing at it who may have paid a premium for any number of cost synergies or otherwise that isn't embedded in an internal valuation in the first place. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'm sure some of that marketplace is clearly reflected in the valuation. That's how the valuer is coming up with the multiples to some degree. But those Excel spreadsheets, and we, we take, I thought we used some pretty reasonable assumptions. I told them that, that the goal of why we were doing this, we weren't doing this to market the business for sale. We were doing this to do a more traditional 
you know, cash flow model. So we would come up with a valuation that would make sense. Um, so it was a what I would say a fair evaluation as opposed to, you know, we're going to sell this business to the highest bidder. And even when we did our second tranche of selling equity in 2020, the market was so frothy. Even the same thing, we did an Excel-based model of this is kind of what the projected cash flows are. Interesting. And and from the financing, and I know one of the classic challenges and worries for doing internal succession plans for employees is just do they do they even have the cash or the cash flow to be able to to do the deal so how, how did you handle it from the financing perspective is this seller financed or bank financed uh, or some other arrangement yeah so it worked out pretty well first of all this wasn't like hey you got to this you know i'm going to do this and you got 30 days to decide i in, in classic Michael Goodman fashion, I talk about what I'm going to do for <laughs> a fair amount of time before I actually do it. And that's probably some self-psychology going on there. But they knew it was coming. So I'm, I'm assuming some people were accumulating. I probably was talking about it for two years before it actually happened, maybe even longer. So people were accumulating or saving. And it, it turned out that some people were able to write those checks and some people were not. And I sell or financed for the people that were not, uh, just as I did again the second time to bring in some new shareholders uh, in 2020. Okay, so you sell or finance the folks that that needed the needed some financing arrangement. That's right. That's right. Which just means they get whatever is five or five or seven years or longer to to pay you back for the purchase. Yeah, we we worked out some terms that made it sense for the for the the few people that needed it. I was pretty flexible. Also, keep in mind that you know I'm not selling enormous chunks. I sold you know ten percent the first time and another ten percent and spread over a bunch of people. So I'm making it you know sort of tolerable for them, but it's not it's not a big deal to do that for them. So I'm happy to happy to accommodate that and make them feel good about it. And then help us understand the. The COO role, like what was what was that? What was that role? Yeah, so there was there was probably three motivations for the COO role. First of all, just the operating this business now was really starting to become a drag on my time. I enjoyed a lot of these elements, though, as we talked about earlier. But whether it was dealing with the technology or the technology companies or the contracts or the office space or the these various elements around running the business, some of the HR elements, uh, it really started to become a real drag on my time. Even just some simple stuff all the way down to participating in a benchmark study and gathering the accounting information to do that. I was really finding myself day to day way caught up in some of those things. Also, the compliance side of the business, you know, was, we were growing and it, compliance was becoming a bigger and bigger challenge. We had more and more people there's more and more to do now these days for compliance. So the idea of getting a CCO was was attractive to me. And then also I had really always wanted to do some, some M&A and the first opportunity to come into my hand to do just fell into my lap and I really enjoyed the experience and I wanted to do more M&A. I didn't, that was not going to be our primary growth, but I was pretty well networked in the profession from the various things that I've done over the years, knew a lot of people, and I wanted to be able to do some of that. And the idea of bringing in a COO to help me take on some of these management responsibilities that were frankly probably could be done better by somebody who that was their focus, the compliance, and then the support around that was a really important thing to me at that point. And so how do you find a COO? Yeah. So that was hard. It was hard also because as I sit here today and describe it, it's easier than as I was you know, figuring it all out. I spoke to a lot of people that were in firms that were COOs or that 
had firms where their COs and what what are the reasons and, and such and and it, it, you know it was really hard to come into contact with with people. Ultimately, I even I think I might have even reached out to a recruiter at one point to help me with that. But I got introduced to a couple of really nice and interesting people and ultimately met Aaron Towell, who was had lots of experience working in the hedge fund industry as a COO, CFO, and CCO. So he kind of knew a lot of that. You know, at first I was like, oh, I really want somebody with some RIA experience really knows, you know, but he had enough knowledge around the compliance stuff through the, the ADV process and all of those things. And I kind of liked that he wasn't from the RIA world in a way. He came with a lot of fresh ideas. He was very energetic and curious and wanted to really get deep into our business. He's even gone as far as to get his CFP now. He really wanted to be in a wealth management practice. This was something he was actually looking for. And I liked the idea that he was going to come with a different lens and he fit in really well and was able to do all these things and probably many of them better than I could have done if I kept doing them. And so what is the what does the business look like today? What is Wealthstream as it stands today? Wealthstream as it stands today is is a billion dollar plus firm. We work with about 350 families. We're actually onboarding two people in the next couple of weeks. We'll be about 22 people by the end of May. 10 of those people are sort of advisors working directly with clients. Yeah, we'll have four analysts that are sort of supporting those advisors and growing about six people in ops or slash management. We're having a great time. We really, as I said earlier, you know, the coolest thing that's happened all over all these years is when I get on, you know, now these Zoom calls that we do fairly regularly and I look at the team and it's just, I'm looking around all the different faces and I'm so excited that every one of them are on the team and we have a great, a great organization and we do great work. So what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? Ooh, there's so many things that I could probably talk about around the surprising. I think it, it's it's got to come back to the biggest thing and the biggest surprise to me, once again, is just the people that I work with. I really never, of course, I hired people that I liked and wanted to work with. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, Bill being that early hire and having that great experience, you know, how we've grown together and how we've become friends over the years has been special. But I never, in those early years, never thought about there'll be a whole team of Bills, you know, a whole team of people that I, I, I really like and I'm happy I work with. And and there's a little bit of me that's frankly super surprised that from this time that I quit my job, you know, 25 years ago to start the business that now we have the, all these people that, you know, at the risk of sounding immodest or arrogant, I don't mean to, but that wouldn't be all together if I didn't do that. And that's probably the biggest surprise, uh, the idea of that. And also early on, I was very resistant to sort of hiring people out of school or younger people because I myself changed jobs so many times trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was hesitant to make that investment. And what a what a 180 that I've done on that, mostly with the help of Mike Kimmel and the organization and sort of being that mentor. But we have hired a whole bunch of people out of college. And what a great experience that has been to be able to invest in them and work with them and, and learn from them and be able to see some of them grow into the, the role that they've grown into within our organization. That's, that to me has got to be one of the most rewarding experiences that I've ever had. So what, what brought you around to get comfortable hiring young folks straight out of college is given? I mean, you're not certainly not the first I've heard that has concern around hiring folks fresh out of college because just there's, there's so much 
job changing, not, not even as a negative to saying young people are job changer or job hoppers, but just like, we just sometimes don't know what we want to do yet. And we end up making some job changes or career changes throughout our twenties, sometimes even beyond that, trying to find that thing. So what, what got you comfortable to, to hire younger talent and I guess, and, and not be hung up on that as a concern? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I, I don't think it's a generational thing at all. I, I, I did it myself. So I think the experience that we had was working initially with a school like Virginia Tech that has an amazing program. And Texas Tech was always the firm that I had heard of that had a great program, but they were so far away. Once we got to learn and know more about Texas Tech and 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 learn about Professor Clock and Litton that work there and what an amazing job they do educating their students. We actually went down there, spent the day, we sat in on a class and really got to see and, and started having an intern program and hiring from there. That opened up the floodgates for us to feel comfortable with that. And now, while we always look to recruit people from financial planning programs, we've hired people out of just general business or finance or other degrees because of the confidence we've built in, in recruiting those folks. So what was the, what was the low point for you on this journey? The low point for me was no point. (laughs) I I mean, you know, there are a lot of low points, I guess you could say. I don't look back though and say there were any days where like, you know, this was the worst day of my career. There were some low points probably when, you know, you lose your first big client that you thought you were going to work with forever. Or, you know, there, some of the low points were probably around, the, you know, some of these abrasively difficult market downturns. Like 2001 and two, you had three years in a row of downturns. These were hard periods. I would say that a low point for me was probably 9-11, working in an office that was literally four blocks, maybe three blocks from from the World Trade Center on 9-11 and not knowing if I was going to go home that day. I think that experience was way bigger than any low point I had career-wise. It just happened to be in my career. And that was probably the biggest low point that I could think of in my career. You were actually downtown that day as all of it was going down? Yes, yes. I was. My office that I was in at the time was was literally a couple of blocks away. Ironically, I was coming from a breakfast meeting with a buddy of mine who worked at the Federal Reserve right down there. And I was walking across the street to my office and I heard this noise when the first plane hit one of the towers. I did not know if I was going to go home that day. I didn't know what was actually happening when those buildings came down and the ramifications of that to the to the space in the building that I was in nearby and all that. And this, when the windows go black, can't see out the window because of all the debris and soot. You don't know what's actually happening. So, you know, I don't mean to take us down into this discussion, but we talk about downturns in my career. It really, that is the ultimate downturn or low point that could occur for anybody, I think. So given this journey that you made from building in a lifestyle practice and then making a pretty conscious decision to shift it into a more of an enterprise that you've built. Like, what do you, what do you know about it now that you wish you could go back and tell you from, from 20 years ago when you were starting this journey? There's a part of me, like I say, that I probably wouldn't want to know too much different because I would probably wouldn't be able to get here the way I did and keep going. 
But I think that I would have probably wanted to have more people around me faster. There was this period of time where I really just viewed it as, you know, I'll be the advisor and I'll have some people that'll help me. And probably the only thing I would have done differently is probably had more people around me faster. I don't have any frustration or regret about the time it took me to get to where I am. I, I wouldn't, yeah, it would have been nicer if if I didn't have to struggle as much in the early years, you know, financially. But once again, at the risk of sounding, you know, trite and typical, those things kind of make me who I am. And I'm kind of happy that they worked out that way. So what advice would you give to younger or newer advisors coming into the business now? Well, I would say that they should Go in all, all at it, you know. There's so many more resources and places to get good advice and counseling and, and, and help these days than there was when I got into the business. So I don't feel it's as necessary. But I think the most important thing that you can do now is to really be committed to the process, probably not be – the one thing uh, – now that you mentioned this and I think back, probably the one thing that I should have done earlier on, not necessarily because I'd be more successful or make more money because that, that's not the reason I'm saying this, but it would have been easier if I – took a focus. So, you know, but it doesn't necessarily need to be such a narrow niche, but at least have a focus, have a type of a client, a size of a client, be more committed to a structure, have a little bit more of the end in mind when you're trying to build something as opposed to just going out and, you know, pounding the pavement. But think a little more about where you want to be in five years, what you want it to look like, and try to build it with that in mind. I, I didn't do enough of that early on until I started really hiring people to help advise me on how to do that. Now, I feel like, you know, that's something we work at every day. We've built the management team in the firm. We do annual planning. We do a quarterly meeting. We have a great group of people that we sit down and, and review regularly. What are our goals and what do we need to do to get there? And that's part of what's driving our success today. I probably would suggest that somebody have some sort of model for that earlier on. What about for CPAs that are thinking about transition from the from the accounting business into the financial planning business? Well, the number one thing that I see CPAs do that I would advise against is they're they move too slowly. They're too cautious. They're too nervous. And part of that, you know, makes a logical sense. Most of them are, you know, making a good living, have a reliable business, and there's a good structure to that. And and it's and they're also a little further along in, in their careers and their age and their family responsibilities. So I'm sensitive to that. But they all wait too long to jump in. And all the ones that do are really happy. You know, at the end of the day, nobody's really jumping up and down, like I say, to that you did their tax return. But people will give you the biggest warmest handshake or hug after you've helped them get to their financial planning goals. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And one of the themes that always comes up is just that the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, you build, I think anybody would objectively call a very successful business as a billion dollar RAA. And, and particularly having made that transition from lifestyle practice to enterprise but I'm, I'm wondering now, as you look forward, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, well, Michael, being a big fan of the podcast, I obviously knew you were going to ask me that question. And I struggled trying to prepare for the, one of the few things I thought I could prepare for in advance of this conversation. And the people that know me best will understand, but 
The word success kind of makes me uncomfortable. I really don't like that word. I think that as I look back on what what I've done, I feel like uh, I was successful a long time ago. I was lucky enough to be able to do the things that I did, even when things weren't going good and I was eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly and, you know, working a lot of hours. I liked what I was doing. And obviously liking what you're doing means success already. Also, success to me means sort of a, a destination, somewhere you're gotten. And I don't ever want to be accused of letting any grass go around my feet at any point in my life. So it also means to me that Success for me means being able to define new goals and to come up with new ideas and to to be able to work towards new things. And I've been really fortunate that I am able to do that. I have a great team of people that allow me to be creative and come up with some ideas here or there. Sometimes they're like, no, 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 that's not a good one. <laughs> but most of the time, they're very supportive. And the idea of being able to work towards new goals is is by far the most successful thing I'll ever be able to do. Very cool. Very cool. So what, what comes next for you? You can't let the grass growing know he's got to be working towards new goals. Yeah. So, you know, building this multi-generational firm, we have G2 is, is doing great. I'm super excited about that. They're, they're shareholders now. We have seven other shareholders in the firm and I'm super excited about their potential as leaders of the firm in the future. They're, they impress me all the time, not only about what a great job they do taking care of their clients and what great advisors they are, but how they are great teammates and how they mentor now G3. And I'm super excited about G3. They're going to do things that not only me, but G2 couldn't do or didn't know to do. And that's my focus uh, for the most part in the practice at this point is making sure that the firm has that those roots to be a multi-generational firm. And to get out of the way. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. I, I love I love it. I love just the journey and the the way that it's transitioned and and even that the the visions kind of expanded over time. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure to be here. And like I say, you know, knowing you the way I have, it's it's wonderful to have this conversation with you and to also thank all the other people that I've come across that are that have mentored me over the years, including you, Michael. And and I know I, I'm better off for, for all of that and, and everybody else will be for, for the work that you do. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.